let's say that you've tuned in for the first time in our series this morning. If that is the case, I just want to welcome you here. We are so glad that you decided to tune in this morning. And with this being your first time tuning into our series, you may have noticed this title, Faith, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And you may have recognized also opening the series was some very iconic music. And as soon as you saw the title and you heard the music, you were instantly recognizing an iconic Clint Eastwood movie. Incredibly iconic when it comes to Western movies. Now, in my mind, when I think of Western movies, Clint Eastwood is the greatest of all time. When I think of a Wild West cowboy, I think of Clint Eastwood. There is no one greater than him. And I know that as soon as I said greatest of all time, immediately someone else might have come to your mind. Maybe you're a John Wayne fan, or you just love Val Kilmer in Tombstone. It's interesting that we're just naturally drawn to this comparison game. And I honestly just love these conversations when it comes to the greatest of all time, or for short, the GOAT. I love it in all areas, but particularly sports. Like Tom Brady is the GOAT when it comes to the NFL. Or Wayne Gretzky is the GOAT when it comes to hockey. Unless you're Pastor Paul, then you might argue that it's Pavel Burry. I love the conversation around, is LeBron James closing in on GOAT status, or is Michael Jordan the true GOAT? I love these conversations. And I'm more than certain that they don't happen in sports alone. We love talking about who are the greatest musicians of all time. I think it's the Beatles. No one influenced culture more than them. Or, you know, maybe someone would argue that it's somebody else. Like I know Pastor John Ravishander would likely say that ABBA is the greatest band of all time. Or here's one on for size. Who is the GOAT when it comes to Renaissance painters? Was it Leonardo da Vinci or Michelangelo or Donatello or Raphael? And if that's not your cup of tea, you can simply just discuss who's your favorite Ninja Turtle in the chat. We just love these conversations around who is the greatest of all time. I just love them. I love the debates and I love the conversation. But I think when it comes to the Old Testament, there is only one character that I would be willing to give the GOAT title to. And that's the character that we're going to explore this morning. But before I reveal who that is, I'm going to let you discuss who you think that is in the chat. And where we started off, if this is your first time tuning in today, we are right in the middle of our series, Faith the good, the bad, and the ugly. And can I just say that I have loved this series so far because it has been an incredibly insightful look at faith through the lens of some of the Bible's greatest people of faith. And even though I've been a follower of Jesus for some time now, I have personally learned so much from each of the messages mainly because they aren't simply focusing on all of the good 
feel-good, clean parts of their stories. But they're also focusing on the bad, messy parts as well. All with the purpose of not knocking them down a notch or building a case for them to be eliminated from this list of all-time greats. We're not canceling anyone this morning. But instead, we want to learn from their example of faith and hopefully find some encouragement and challenge from their example. Things that may help strengthen our faith in God. From their stories, we see that people matter to God no matter their mistakes. So today, the plan is that we will again follow the same pattern of selecting someone from the list of faith giants that's found in Hebrews 11 and use that as our launching place to explore the idea of faith through their story. Now, before I unveil who it is we will be looking at, the Old Testament goat himself, I want to start off with the definition of faith that the author of Hebrews 11 sets up for us at the beginning of the chapter. A couple weeks ago, we we were on Alpha, and we were discussing and watching the video of how can I have faith. And during the discussion time, it was really obvious to us as leaders that we can sometimes have a very different definition when it comes to faith. So, we want to start with a definition. And the author of Hebrews defines it like this. And this is the way that we're going to define it today. Hebrews 11, chapter 1, or sorry, chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Now, for me, after reading this, I think that faith essentially boils down to the idea that we trust that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. That even when we can't see him face to face or touch him physically, or even when we don't see him at work around us or in our lives, we can still have faith or trust that he is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do. So today, when I talk about faith, this will be the guiding definition that we use. We trust that God is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he will do. So then, who are we going to focus our faith conversation around today? Like I said, we're talking about the Old Testament goat himself. Did you have a chance to figure out in the chat? If not, here are some more hints. When it comes to the entire Old Testament, there is no one greater than him. There is no one more influential than him. His name alone is mentioned over 800 times in the Bible, and his teachings and writings are repeated countless times by Jesus himself as well. This character also shows up in the Gospels in bodily form. And the way that Matthew writes his gospel is with the intent for you to see Jesus as the new him. He is regarded by both Jewish and Christian scholars as one of the most important people in all of scripture. And that person is, drumroll please, Moses. 
We are talking about Moses this morning. There is no one greater than Moses in the Old Testament. If there was a Mount Rushmore of biblical characters, Moses would be right up there. And I know that I'm being a little bit dramatic with some of this stuff, but I can't stress enough the importance of Moses in the Bible. And I can't stress more the importance of Moses and our ability to know God at all and to trust him and have assurance that even when we don't see him, we know that he is who he says he is. So then, what does the author of Hebrews say about Moses? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. Now, I didn't include everything that the author Hebrew notes about Moses' story. The passage itself in Hebrews shifts from by faith Moses to by faith they, shifting the focus from Moses alone to the whole people of Israel, which included Moses, but wasn't exclusively about him. So I decided to use that to help us narrow down just to the things that are highlighted in this passage. Because honestly, there is a ton of ground that we could cover just looking at Moses' story. Remember, he is the greatest of all time. And there is so much to unpack about his entire life and impact. However, within the parameters set in Hebrews 11, it highlights one of the most significant events in the entire Old Testament and Bible. That event was the Exodus, an incredibly important event. So let's go there. If you have your Bible handy or your Bible app open, flip to Exodus chapter 1. Now, the beginning of Exodus picks the story up after Jacob's family settles in Egypt because there was a famine. All of this is described right at the end of Genesis. Now, Pastor John Ravishander a couple weeks ago talked about the promise made to Abraham and the promise made to Sarah. And it's here that we really see the beginning of that promise coming to fruition. Exodus chapter 1 verse 6 says, Now Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, and all of his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly increased in number, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So things were good. Like, really good. Like, 
God was doing what he said he would do. He's fulfilling his promise to Abraham. But then this is where the story heads in a completely different direction. A new power comes into play. A new regime comes to Egypt. A new king comes to power. And he saw this Jewish people as a problem. And so what does Pharaoh do? Well, Pharaoh puts slave masters over them. He puts them over Israel to oppress them with forced labor, with the sole purpose of oppressing them, controlling them, and pressing them down. For Israel, things have gone from good to bad in a hurry. And to make matters worse, this didn't fix Pharaoh's problem. God's promise continues to shine through, even in the bad. They continue to grow into that great nation promised to Abraham. And here is where things go from good to bad to downright ugly. Verse 15 to 21 says this, The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives, of course, respond and give reason as to why they don't follow this order. And then the story continues. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born must be thrown into the, into the Nile and let every girl live. I just want to say that this opening part of the story is really ugly. Moses' story as a whole is not clean. Not the Exodus story by a long shot. It is incredibly messy. It is not really cartoon friendly. And I'm not sure if you noticed this before when we were reading the Hebrews 11 passage, but it's really interesting to me that the author of Hebrews bookends Moses' story with one word, death. And not only death, but the death of children. The author wants us to know that this is shocking, horrifying, and ugly. Let's look again at Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born, because they saw he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict or law. And what was the king's edict or law? Well, it was to kill every male baby. And how does the author of Hebrews end Moses' entry? Well, by faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. 
What is being summarized here is the tenth and final plague that God brought upon Egypt. A plague so bad that Pharaoh would have to let God's people go. What happens is God passes over the land of Egypt and strike down, strikes down and kills the firstborn boys of Egypt, only sparing those who put the lamb's blood on their doorframe, which would have meant primarily Israelites. It's strange to me that this is how Moses' story is framed in Hebrews. Just trying to wrap my head around all of this is just really incredibly hard. And I really wish that we had a couple of hours this morning to really unpack all of the elements of the Exodus story and of Moses' story. But the main question and thought that I have when I look at Moses' messy bookends is this. How can we have faith in the downright ugly of life? Let me say that again because this isn't your typical message about Moses or faith. How can we have faith in the downright ugly of life? And can I be honest with you for a second, church? This question has been really rattling in my head the last couple of weeks. When I first picked to speak on Moses, this was absolutely not where I thought we would be this morning. But I feel like this is an important question to ask because there is a lot of ugly going on in our world. I was really heartbroken and shook when I read about the 215 indigenous children and their bodies discovered in Canloops a couple weeks ago. 215 children that never got to go home. Countless families lost beloved children to unmarked graves. Entire generations affected by that. And not just that, but all that came with the residential schools in Canada. And I find it absolutely impossible to read the opening chapters of Exodus without those thoughts weighing heavy in my mind. There are just too many similarities in those stories. How do we have faith when that's what we hear or see or even worse, experience? I can't even imagine how difficult that is. And for me, what makes this even worse and what makes this even harder is how can you have faith in God when the ugliness is brought on by those who claim to follow him? How do you have faith in this kind of ugliness? Or how do you have faith when experiencing racism or oppression? Again, it is so hard to read Exodus and not see parallels to what has happened and is happening to our brothers and sisters of color? How do you have faith in abusive circumstances? How do you have faith in the toughest circumstances of life? 
This is the question that I think we need to unpack from Moses' story. Because like I said, Moses' story isn't neat and tidy. It's not all well and good. It's messy. And I think the reality of the realities of life can be incredibly messy and at times unbelievably ugly. But one of the things that I love about the Bible is that it doesn't shy away from the ugly. It offers us a lifeline when we feel like we're drowning or when we're, when we're struggling to have faith in God. That we're struggling to have faith in God is who he says he is, even when it doesn't seem that way. And that he will do what he says he will do even when that seems like it couldn't be further from the truth. The Bible addresses the ugliness of life head on. And it shines light on it and brings good news to the ugly. So, how can we have faith in the downright ugly? I want to offer a couple of thoughts from the life of Moses in response to this question. And I say in response because honestly, I don't have any answers. But I do think that there are important claims that Scripture makes that can help us have faith or continue to have faith when we find ourselves in ugly, difficult times. So let's look at a couple of things from a, let's look at a couple of those from a well-known story in the Bible. An all-time great story. The famous story where God speaks to Moses through a burning bush. I'm sure this would have been an incredibly strange sight to see. And I'm more than sure that that's what drew Moses over to it. While tending his father-in-law's flock of sheep. Because remember, at this stage in Moses' life, he has gone from a prince of Egypt to a runaway-turned-shepherd living in the desert. Remember from Hebrews 11 when it says, he refused to be known as Pharaoh's daughter's son, and he chose to be mistreated with God's people. Moses approaches the bush, and God speaks. He tells Moses his name. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All characters that we've mentioned in this series, by the way. Overwhelmed by this, Moses hides his face, and God says this. Exodus 3, verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, and I have heard them cry out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out, out of bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land. I believe in these two verses, God is speaking a foundation for faith in the ugliness of life. He's saying two incredibly important things here. The first is this, that he sees, he hears, and he is concerned. 
He says, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them cry out. And he says, I am concerned about their suffering. God's attention is not somewhere else. His gaze is right there. He knows and he cares. And I know that it can seem like you're alone or God is aloof when you're in the midst of the ugliness. It can seem like he doesn't care when you're in the middle of that incredibly awful situation you're going through. I know that it can, it can feel like the prayers just bounce against the ceiling one after another. But what, from, what, but what from, I get God saying here to Moses is that's not true. God's attention isn't somewhere else. It's right there. God knows exactly what you're going through. He knows exactly what's going on. He sees, he hears, and he cares. And I think that this is an incredibly important truth to fasten our faith to. Because the idea that God notices us in the midst of the worst of life and that he hears you when you cry out and that he absolutely takes no joy in your suffering and is deeply concerned about what's going on in your life and in our world, that's something that you can fasten your faith to. That's something that you can fasten your faith to that allows you to trust God that he is who he says he is and have assurance that even when it doesn't seem like it, that he will do what he says he will do. Look at the verse again. Look at what he says in verse 8. So I have come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land and into a good and spacious land. Even in the midst of the downright ugly of what's happening to Israel, what God is saying is that he will still do what he promised Abraham in Genesis 12. God is going to rescue them in order to fulfill what he promised them. And he promised to give him this land, this promised land. So we can fasten our faith also to the idea that God will do what he promised. And I know that this idea is often really hard to translate to our lives. Because how does the ugliness of life even remotely look like what God promised? 215 dead indigenous children. Or systematic racism. Or domestic abuse or sickness or death or a whole lot of other awful things that I can't even imagine. That's, those aren't things that God promised. It's not. The brokenness of his creation has brought those things about, not God. That's not what he promised. So what did God promise that can help us stay afloat when we're just drowning. He promised to come down and rescue us. And he did that in the Exodus. God rescued his people out of Egypt. But more importantly, 
he did that through the person of Jesus. That God did come down and became flesh in Jesus with the whole purpose of rescuing us from the ugliness of life. And not just that, but to give us life and life to the full. God mounted the greatest rescue plan of all time in Jesus. A plan to bring us into relationship with our Heavenly Father who loves us and would go through incredible lengths just to save us. Even if that meant suffering and dying in the ugliest way possible. The ugliness of the cross. And it's interesting that this is something that's foreshadowed in the Exodus story itself. Remember the bookend involving the Passover that I talked about earlier? Yes, there's death present there. But God promised all those who put the blood of the Lamb on their doorposts, and he promised that all that did that, he would save them. And it's through the blood of the Lamb, it's through Jesus' sacrifice of himself that we're saved, that we're rescued. It's through his death that we have new life. It's through the ugliness of the cross that God is bringing good to those who call on his name to be rescued. This is an offer made to all people. In Exodus, some Egyptians put, uh, were spared because they put lamb's blood on their doorposts and were rescued along with the Israelites. Please notice something here that God sees, God hears, and God is concerned. But the real kicker here is, is that God steps in. God rescued the Israelites, but God also stepped into the suffering on the cross for us. God is active. He's an active and merciful God. He is present and he knows. Jesus came to save. He came to rescue us. We call him the Savior. It's through Jesus that God came down to lead a new kind of exodus, a new kind of rescue. And I think it's important to recognize, friends, that it's not just a rescue, but he came to heal as well. The Greek word for salvation can also be translated to mean heal or to make whole. There is a lot of healing that's needed in our world right now and in our country right now. Jesus came to bring healing from brokenness. So today, if you are in need of rescuing or are wounded by the downright ugliness of life, can I encourage you to reach out to Jesus, to come home to him? This is why Jesus came. He came to rescue those who feel captive. So would you reach out to him this morning? 
I want you to remember that God sees your pain. He hears your cries for help. And he is deeply concerned about your suffering. And he wants to rescue you. He wants to step in to your reality. So if this sounds like good news to you, can I encourage you to reach out to one of our online hosts? If you would like to talk more about this with someone or you want to know more about this Jesus, the one who saves, would you click that button in the chat? And would you connect with one of our online hosts? They would love to talk with you about this and they would love to pray with you because we know that God hears it when we cry out to him. So would you let us cry out with you? So go ahead and click that button because we know that our God sees, he hears, and he cares. But more importantly, he steps in. And friends, finally, I want to conclude with this thought, because I think this is also important from the story of Moses. We recognize that from Moses's, we recognize this from Moses' story that God revealed both his name and his character to Moses. A character like we've been talking about that says that he sees and he hears our cries and he's concerned about our suffering and that he steps in to our suffering. We see this in the character of God. So it needs to be important for us as followers of God that we imitate his character in the world when it comes to suffering, oppression, and injustice. That as followers of Jesus, we need to keep from becoming numb or turning a blind eye towards injustice. We need to take notice of it, and we need to be aware of it. We also need to listen out for the cries of the oppressed, and we need to care deeply. But we also need to step into the suffering of others and be agents of hope, healing, and help. We need to do this with the heart of God, like Jesus has modeled for us. And like Jesus has commanded us, we need to enter into suffering and bring justice. And we need to bring healing to those who are suffering because that is what Jesus did. He modeled that for us time and again in his life. And I feel like this should go without saying, but I'm going to say it anyways. We should not be a part of anything that causes the oppression of others. The ugliness of power and oppression plays out in the, in the biblical story. In fact, when Israel became a superpower of itself under King Solomon, they became oppressors. And God heard the cries of those they oppressed and he eventually takes Israel into exile. They lose it all, the promise and the promised land. And God does this to draw them back to himself, to remind them what he's called them to do, to be a light in the world. 
one of the things that God reveals about his character in the Exodus story is that he is slow to anger. But oppressing the helpless is something that greatly angers him. I want to conclude with this thought. With Egypt, on, with Egypt to their back and in their rearview mirror, God gives a stern command to his people. And he says this, Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, for you were foreigners in Egypt. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do, and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. And when we look back at the Exodus story, that is absolutely a promise that God intends to keep.